Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of MetaStrategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest today is Jim Whitehurst. Jim is the president of IBM, a technology giant with revenues in excess of $77 billion annually. In this role, Jim's responsible for the IBM cloud and cognitive software organization, as well as corporate strategy. Jim joined IBM when it acquired Red Hat in 2019 for $34 billion. He'd been the president and chief executive officer of Red Hat. In this interview, we discuss the differences in IBM and Red Hat's culture, why they're looking to inject cultural elements from each other into their own operating models, and the three cultural characteristics IBM wants to drive, entrepreneurial spirit, growth mindset, and radical candor. We discuss why IBM decided to spin out the managed services business, why Red Hat is separate from IBM, and the importance and potential of AI. Lastly, we discuss some of IBM's failures, how IBM thinks about where it's going to invest versus where it's going to rely on open source, and a variety of other topics. I wanted to share a quick message from our sponsor, Sykes. Sykes is a leading provider of multi-channel demand generation and customer engagement services, helping Global 2000 companies enhance touch points at every stage of the customer journey. To share some perspectives, I'll briefly turn it over to Ian Barkin, the company's chief strategy and marketing officer. Customers don't want and don't deserve a new normal. They deserve and want a better normal. At Sykes, we know this because we spend over 3 billion minutes a year listening to and serving customers of the world's leading brands. And with that much listening, you can't help but know what delights, what infuriates, and what drives customer behaviors and decisions. So what is a better normal? We believe it's the delivery of a truly intelligent customer experience. The call to action has never been clearer for CIOs, CTOs, and the broader C-suite. New is not enough, and the time for tinkering has passed. The winning combination of technology, talent, and customer insight is how to create intelligent customer experiences and a truly better normal. To read more about intelligent customer experiences, check out sykes.com forward slash ICX. Thanks, Ian. And now on to our interview. Well, Jim, thank you. You know, one of the things that I found so interesting from our early correspondences, Jim, and our interviews, you had this fantastic anecdote where you talked about how when you made the transition from COO of Delta to uh, CEO of Red Hat, that the the um, going from a culture where you had people literally saluting you at times at Delta to one where yes. you couldn't necessarily dictate even as CEO how how people could do their jobs. You, you shared with me that you went home after, you know, in the first few weeks and told your wife, I may have to fire everyone. Uh, this is just, you know, incredibly irritating and like so, you know, discombobulated. Uh, but then you realize that it was actually you who needed to do the changing, not everyone else. Um, and I want to, if we can sort of play that forward, I don't necessarily want to dive, you know, for too long into the Red Hat experience, but but um, how I'd be fascinated to understand now yet a new culture, a very different one from Red Hat uh, after the acquisition. Talk a little bit about your own personal journey going from that dynamism of uh, the Red Hat experience to the much larger organization and different culture of IBM. 
Yeah, sure. Well, and I'm, I'm right in the middle of it. So I can spend a ton of time on it. I could spend five hours on it or we can spend five minutes. So yeah. I'll start with a little bit, you know, so what I think I learned over time is I, I would argue Delta Airlines, notwithstanding I'm on the board of United now, is an incredibly well-run company. And it has a culture that would have killed Red Hat. Red Hat is a very well-run company and it has a culture that would have killed Delta. Different well, I'm gonna I'm gonna munge together culture and I'll call it operating model because your operating model is really what drives your culture. So it's leadership style of behaviors, your management processes, your org structure all affect your culture. So I'm gonna munge those together. If we had time, I could try to tease those apart. But let me just kind of start off with those things together a bit. Um, you know, so in my observation there is many companies have developed a, a operating model and culture to drive standardization and efficiency, right? That's what Delta did. The reason Delta is the most on-time airline, at least at the majors, is because we spent a lot of time driving a ton of efficiency, standardization. You know, everything you're doing is about how you take variants out. Um, And that's great for driving efficiency, not really good for driving innovation because innovation is frankly all about driving variants in and so, you know, when I first got to Red Hat, what I thought was chaos, luckily before I killed it, I learned over time was just a relatively extreme way to try to drive a faster pace of innovation. And, you know, just taking the extremes, the operating model at Delta, it's a single digit margin business where you are running very, you know, we would have taken the last piece of lettuce off a salad if we could have called it a salad, right? I mean, you're like really, really, you know, it's a tough business. In the software business, if you get a winning product, it mints money, right? Our, any software products, gross margins are 90 plus percent. And if it's a winner, you know, it's going to generate a lot of money. So the question is, well, how do you generate a winner? And so what's the innovation model that is likely to try the right set of stuff where you ultimately end up with a winner? And so, you know, when I think for even how I spent every day at, at Delta versus Red Hat was different, how the cultures work, it's just the whole models are set up differently. And so fast forward to that, I mean, that's one of the role, the reasons why I, I you know, moved over to be president of IBM is not because we want to drive Red Hat's culture to be IBM's culture, because IBM has a lot of services businesses, we do you know, mainframes, hardware, a bunch of other things, but we want to drive elements of the, IB, of the Red Hat culture into IBM. And the reason I start off with that preamble, and I, I encourage every company around this and I want to be really, really crisp. There is no better and worse culture and operating model. There are cultures and models that are optimized for different things. And here's the trick. Most companies have both. Even Red Hat had both, right? You know, we still had accounts payable processes and other things where we frankly didn't need a whole lot of innovation. You just want those standardized. Delta, you want no innovation on the safety procedures before your flight. Trust me, you want no no experimentation (laughs) there. On the website, you want experimentation. So we're all mixes of those. And it, so to start off, um, you know, kind of coming in from Red Hat, everybody, well, most people at IBM are looking for a breath of fresh air and a change. And I think we're trying to do some of that. But to be very, very crisp, there are elements of IBM's model that are really important for what we do. And there are elements of Red Hat's model that we want to inject into IBM to change. But it's not a value judgment of better or worse. It's different for different purpose. By the way, I'll say this is true in IT. And I think where we're a lot of people mess up in IT is that you, they create a innovation group that's separate. And I have no problem with the separate innovation group you choose to go, but you can't over-celebrate it like they're the special kids and the people who are running your ERP system and keeping the lights on or not, 
right? I mean, you can say, hey, I'm going to run a different model for these two things, but they're both equally important. It's like, oh, my heart or my lungs, I got to have both, right? So I spent a lot of time at IBM talking about those things. Now, what we've done from there is we were very crisp that there were three components of culture or characteristics of culture that we wanted to drive in at IBM, uh, entrepreneurial spirit, growth mindset, and radical candor. But we've also been very clear that those are attributes. And I don't know how to implement an attribute. I don't even know. But what I can do is I can exhibit behaviors. So we started, we're starting off in kind of the software group, which is, I don't know, it's like 90% of the profits is probably 50% of the people. Um, But in the software group, uh, we're taking all of our managers, breaking into cohorts, and we're having town halls, meetings to define behaviors that we believe support radical candor, growth mindset, uh, entrepreneurial spirit. And then we're going to be very clear on that's what we expect of our people. And we're setting up uh, kind of bottom-up rewards and incentives around those things. And so, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, behavior. I If I'm in a meeting and someone doesn't speak up, I will proactively ask everybody in a meeting before we make a decision. You know, it's stuff like that, or I'm going to keep 30 minutes of every agenda free for open time. So if people have issues and want to talk about it. So it's not hard stuff, but you kind of put together the 30 of those behaviors and now you start getting change. People at IBM have been really, really involved, but I've been very crisp up front. There's kind of driving future state and seeking future state. If you want to think about the opposing models that way and, you know, the way I talk about it is, you know, IBM is very much we plan, you know, we get prescribed, and, and, you know, and then we kind of execute. Where at Red Hat, we configure. We don't really plan because you're kind of configuring an organization. You know, we kind of enable rather than really prescribe and we more engage versus execute. And what do those things look like and what elements do we want to try to drive into IBM? So I'm I'm spending a lot of time on this because this is the the core to success. If we get this right, I, I don't worry about strategy, product, et cetera. Those will come uh, with the right, you have the right culture, right people, uh, you know, on the right mission. And so obviously I can talk a lot about it because I think it's core. And by the way, I think this is core. I was literally on the phone with the CEO of a very large company earlier today, and we never even talked about technology. It was all about this. It's like, how do you build a culture that's capable of kind of ingesting a, a faster pace of innovation and doing it themselves? Very interesting. Well, I appreciate that overview, Jim. Um, you are the uh, the first president in 20 years since Sam Palmisano, not to where the the CEO and president roles were separated. Uh, talk a bit about your purview, if you would. Yeah. So I, um, you know, uh, to be let's be honest, I think it was a created role because we want to drive some more of the Red Hat culture uh, inside of IBM. And so, you know, what I'm actually responsible for is really three things. I am directly responsible for the software group. I think the logic there is run a successful software company. So I'm responsible for software. It's like Steve Mills' old job. By the way, except for Red Hat, you know, Red Hat, we're running totally, completely separately. So ironically, Red Hat is the only thing that doesn't report to me. It reports directly to Arvin so we can keep software and and Red Hat at arm's length. And that's intended to be very long-term. I have corporate strategy. So um, as you know, as we're driving this, we call it the fourth platform, this kind of open hybrid cloud, just overall direction. And you know, bluntly, I think IBM for a long time has chased large markets worth, uh, versus building deeply competitively advantaged positions in markets. And so kind of responsible for that. And the third that's not 
it's not an organization that I'm broadly responsible for. So like I have every other, uh, Arvin has staff meetings every week. I have every other one to drive cross-functional execution. And that really came out of my observation is as much as IBM is about integrated value at hardware, software, and services, to be blunt, <laughs> you know, um, Jenny liked to run it with line of sight accountability, which meant there wasn't a lot of coordination among the groups. There wasn't a client. So in front of a client, great coordination to get hardware, software, and services working together. But if you think about where the real value is and integrated value, it's backing all the way back up into products and offerings. So for instance, a couple of things that we're doing, we've already been driving a roadmap of how do we make sure that OpenShift, which is our modern container platform run across Amazon and Azure and all the clouds, also runs on the mainframe. So if you have operational data on the mainframe and you want to um, run your Python-based ML AI application you know, at, at night on it versus migrating your data off, you can do that now. Well, that wasn't something that you could coordinate to do in the field. That took engineering and 18 months of work to make happen. You know, I have a whole effort on telco because telco and edge start to blur a little bit. So to make sure we're landing the right platform for 5G uh, with the telcos needs to be consistent with what we are doing in IoT and industrial manufacturing on the factory floor because it's a common, you know, uh, uh, infrastructure needs to go out that way. So I'm responsible for anything kind of cross-functional, which is a lot of the initiative. So it's those three things. but to to be blunt, I mean, it was partly created uh, because we wanted to inject a little more Red Hat in. And as I said, Red Hat is totally separate. So we talked about two cultures working together, not coming together. Got it. And, and you, you're, you alluded to the fact that, um, that there's going to be this kind of split. Uh, earlier this month, there was highlighted that IBM would split into these two organizations. Uh, IBM would remain as a hybrid cloud platform and AI company, and the NUCO would be a managed infrastructure services company uh, uh, split, split apart. Talk, you, you've, you've alluded to that. would love to go a little bit deeper into sort of the logic of the two. Obviously, it's going to be a, a big undertaking. Talk about uh, the power of that, that disunion, if you will. Yeah. So, well, first off, just one broad commentary, and then I'll walk you through the details. This is what we would put, by the way, in a press release. So I'll give you the real inside skinny on it. Thank but let you. me start off with uh, just a broad commentary, having only been at, at IBM now for six months as an employee. I mean, I was kind of part of it it's after we closed a little over a year ago. Very few companies are willing to fundamentally change who they are and what they do to meet client needs. Like I'll pick on Red Hat. I think Red Hat's a great company. I, you know, spent over a decade building it, love it. And we, of course, listen to clients and we would drive roadmaps different ways, but we were an open source software company and we weren't going to stop being an open source software company ever, no matter what. Where IBM over time has been willing to fundamentally morph the portfolio to what we observe were their areas of value. So very quickly, the I'll, I'll talk about what the, the spinoff is, and then I'll talk about why we did, did it. So IBM is willing to do that. I, I think that's a wonderful thing. So we are spinning off the managed service business. So IBM, I won't get there, Lena. There's a business called GTS, Global Technology Services, that has the managed service business. It also has uh, product support, which is going to stay with IBM. So the managed service component of the business, we are pulling out uh, as a separate kind of um, um, business. And they're really kind of, uh, there are several reasons why we're doing it. Kind of, I call it three main reasons why we're doing it. Um, first off, 
the we've got we went through the whole portfolios any news you know kind of senior team did so arvin and i and you know strategy group and all we kind of went through the portfolio and of course you always look like where are their synergies and where are their dissynergies and anytime you have different businesses there's going to be some degree of dissynergy so you have to say there got to be enough synergy to outweigh that and that so you know if you take for example uh, in our services portfolio, our consulting business, which actually builds Migrate's applications. There's a ton of synergy between that and the platform, right? They're building skills to help us land the platform, et cetera, et cetera. But so much of where the world's going, it is building or migrating applications onto homogenous kind of generic infrastructure that, you know, whether that's on-premise or running on a cloud, the whole point is you're trying to write, you know, containerized or virtually, you know, hopefully containerized or virtualized applications that are abstracted from the hardware that it sits on, right? And so that's where we're going, whether that is with the OpenShift, the container platform, we're taking all of our software, we've containerized it on top of that platform so it can run on any cloud, our services capability to build, you know, containerized applications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's our whole thrust of what we're doing. And even in the system side, it's like, okay, well, how do we take things like pervasive encryption or our, you know, massive big memory systems, et cetera, and be able to expose that to a cloud native developer kind of frictionless versus file platform. The one business that kind of stuck out like a sore thumb is the managed service business. And you all know what this is. So a traditional data center that kind of cropped up in the age of client server and best of breed is all about managing complexity and manage complexity well because there's a massive amount of it right and so you have complex application stacks you have spaghetti architectures all those things and what they're good at is managing that and the issue is that has very little to do with the new applications now you might move from one to the other but you're typically not putting a new application in that kind of environment if anything over time you want to work that down so we didn't see as much synergy as there used to be there, but there's clearly some dis-synergy. So, and this I'll go back to my analogy. What I did every day at, at Delta, I spent 85% of my time in my office holding performance reviews, looking at first flight performance, looking at maintenance reliability, looking at flight attendant dispatch reliability, catering, all of those things to run an operationally excellent organization. At Red Hat, I was never in my office, right? I'm out, we're trying to figure out what the new products are. And IBM runs more, a little bit more like Red Hat that way in terms of, well, what's the future? Where are we investing? How do we land this platform? And here's this managed service business over here that just is not having the a management cadence that works for it. Also, every time there's a resource contention, when the GTS business wants to invest in AI-infused automation to take cost out of the managed infrastructure versus, oh, we need those dollars to help us land this next platform that's the future. Guess who won that battle? And so whether it's resource contention, whether it's management cadence, and then there's bluntly just a financial logic. It's a lower growth business. So trying to split it out so IBM grows faster. Those are the three reasons that in the end, we decided to spin it out. I think the I think the more important, well, or to me, the more illuminating question is why didn't we spin out all the services or why didn't we take all the low growth? Because you took the low growth, you always said take the mainframe out, but there are too much synergies between the mainframe and the platform with where we're going. And you'd say, well, why don't you just get all services out? But again, there's so much synergy in terms of our ability to invest ahead in in capability and GBS, the consulting business, to be able to build uh, uh, applications or migrate applications onto the platforms that we're building. 
So those we couldn't figure out. I mean, there's just there's just too much synergy keeping all of that together. And the managed service business ended up being kind of the odd man out. Got it. Interesting. Jim, can you talk a bit about the strategies and techniques that you're using across IBM and Red Hat to ensure that there are synergies, even if to some extent those companies are, are going to remain independent in many ways? Well, just real quick on the Red Hat side, and then I'll come back and answer your question. The reason we are keeping Red Hat separate isn't that we're worried Big Blue might kill it, though I do frankly worry a little bit about that, right? Until we kind of get Big Blue to where I want to get it. But the problem we always had standalone at Red Hat was we observed the same problem we saw that we fixed with Linux, which was abstracting the application from infrastructure, right? You know, it used to be when you ran your your SAP system on Solaris on Sun, you had to do a hardware upgrade. You had one person you could go to, right? And that never worked out well for anybody, but maybe Sun back in the day. And so we abstracted hardware from applications with Linux, right? So you write it for Linux, every piece of hardware certified to it. You kind of just created more choice in that. When we saw cloud emerging, we said, oh my God, we need to do the same thing. Now it's less the operating system or the container platform. So Red Hat five years ago launched the container platform that cuts across all the clouds. Our concern was we just weren't big enough, right? This was developing quickly, we weren't big enough. And so we needed a bigger partner. But the problem is any partner we had was gonna be biased somewhere else in the stack. And every horizontal software provider that's ever been successful, when they landed the platform wasn't biased, right? When when Microsoft landed or kind of kind of basically became the default choice of the desktop operating system, they weren't in the the uh, uh, productivity suite business or you know SQL Server, et cetera. They landed the platform, then they built around it. VMware, same thing, landed the platform, then they went into NSX and, and uh, vSAN, et cetera. So that was our problem with anybody buying Red Hat. And so what Ginny came up with, I give credit, is like, hey, we're going to buy you, we're going to run you totally completely separate. You guys run well. This isn't about synergies. This is about we can put more effort behind you, but you will be a separate company. You need to be able to work with Microsoft, Amazon, HP completely separately. We'll be biased to you because we own you and there will be benefit, but you can't be biased to us. And so the reason Red Hat is separate is exactly that. If a Red Hat sales team's going in with Microsoft on landing OpenShift, which our container platform on Azure, the Microsoft team has to know that they're not going to run to IBM and somehow make more money doing that or have any influence there at all. So Red Hat, even the Salesforce instance that Red Hat uses is different. So there's no data flow. So there, there is actually silo issues between Red Hat and, and, and IBM because we've, we've done that intentionally. So now within, um, within IBM, you know, this is the effort we have underway. And so I don't, uh, we are far from perfect. So we're doing a, a couple things. One is we're trying to create kind of a set of teams that cut across relatively small where we, we're, we're basically, um, well, I'll take telco for, for instance. The, the problems we had in the past on telco um, uh, is we have services capability that knows how to help do a, a, a kind of a, a 5G or a four, you know, a network kind of related implementation. We have people who know how to build enterprise applications. Those are all in, in, one, in two different components of services. The problem that would happen is if you're running the services business, that telco project ends and a banking project starts. 
Well, you're trying to optimize utilization. You would suck all those people off immediately onto a banking project. Well, then the next telco project comes up and you don't have the resources there. Same thing on the engineering side. So what we've done to try to kind of tear down the silos, we're going to, we're experimenting with two or three models. I'm just using this as one example we've committed to. So we're, we've hired a senior leader for telco um, that is only going to have about eight people reporting uh, to him in this case uh, to just kind of help facilitate. But we've gotten each component of IBM to commit to ring fits resources that they cannot pull off. Because what you don't want to do is start to say, well, I'm going to have these telco resources are going to report to different organization and all the issues associated with that and what, you know, who's their boss and country. So we're, we're doing ring fits resources that are dedicated to a very, very small central group. And that central group then kind of has kind of a bit of power of purse around it. So that's one method we're trying in terms of, and we're, we're going to do uh, basically the same thing in core banking because it's the same kind of set of issues where you need a set of dedicated engineering resources you need a dedicated go-to-market. You need dedicated services resources that all need to coordinate work together. So we're using ring fencing in that case. More broadly on the culture change in terms of the behaviors that, that we are committing to, um, uh, we talk a lot about collaboration. Another that we did day one, the, the, the first day, you know, Arvin took his new job. He and I talked about this in advance, sent out a note saying everybody's going to get paid the same way. Now, the absolute amounts differ, but everybody gets paid on IBM overall performance, not their individual performance. Now, you, everybody on the senior team, you ripple down a couple of levels, you know, you want some more line of sight, but the senior team is a senior team. We got everybody together. It's like, we are, we, we're the senior team and we are responsible for IBM Corporation, not cloud and cognitive software services. So we've done it kind of both top down in terms of messaging and compensation, um, as well as we're kind of doing this groundswell on uh, kind of behaviors. And then we're actually taking a set of initiatives and I'd say kind of directly injecting in uh, kind of solutions, um, you know, by industry. I wondered actually, uh, especially as you're in your strategy role, you mentioned strategy is one of the areas that you're, you're focused on, Jim. And as you look to the future, and of course, uh, perhaps with a lens that, that that's as relevant as possible to this group of global chief information officers, um, you know, what are some of the areas that you're most bullish on? We can hear a little bit of it just in terms of some of the areas of emphasis and certainly the areas that will become kind of even more focal once the split happens. But maybe you can get into some more of the specifics of some of the areas that you, as I say, are most bullish on for the future. Well, I mean, I know this is going to sound trite, and I'll kind of come back and talk a little bit what I mean by it. You know, really applied AI is um, uh, is there is so much value, and we are still in the relatively early days there. And when I say that, everybody talks, I'll use a specific example, a client we ju just finished implementing this with. It's, you know, I mean, basic things. So they, they're a supplier to uh, the automotive industry, and they weld a lot of things together. OK, well, you know, if you start, if you get slight misalignment and the welds get off, if you don't notice that till fairly farther far down the chain, it's really hard to rip welds apart. So you basically have to scrap this stuff. So we put in a, a solution that basically is taking some of our, well, a, a fair amount of our AI capability and um, literally just on a sensor, but all it's doing is picking up video and sound 
and with like over 90% uh, accuracy can tell you if a weld's getting offline. And it was like immediate, like day one savings associated with being able to do that. I know that sounds like a mundane example. I mean, it's literally hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, um, in, in savings. But I mean, I, I picked a mundane example just because we just completed it. So we're talking about, but also, you know, it's, it's not AI, like it doesn't have to all be that we're going to figure out exactly what a customer is, you know, going to do, or there are a lot of mundane uses like that that can uh, uh, generate just a tremendous amount of value. And when you look at applying that in customer care, or even in kind of really understanding employees and what they're doing and career pathing and applying AI to that, identifying risk of people leaving or skill gaps and what that means. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary uh, what AI can do. I, from a strategist perspective, what I like about it in terms of IBM is so much of what you see in AI is, is a byproduct of what Web 2.0 companies are doing. It's almost any machine learning algorithm out there is you know, a byproduct of, you know, you know, hey Google or Siri or those, you know, those things. And that's great. And those are free and open source and IBM and anybody else can use them. The, the problem is there's some specific areas that most enterprises face. Like if you're in financial services, if you've got to be able to say why you gave a loan or not, or why, you know, when you deal with people, why you did take this action. And so it has to be auditable. Guess what? Machine learning's not auditable, right? It's by definition, right? And so we've invested in areas there, natural language processing, et cetera. And you take that together with, the models, and this is the magic of Red Hat and IBM working together, you say, well, we only need to put the wrapper on there things that don't exist in open source communities, but the combination, we can do things that couldn't happen before. So I think it is so incredibly impactful to almost every aspect of a business, again, from how you're managing your employees to how you're doing welds together to how you're managing software. And we are so in the early days of it, it's massive, but from an IBM perspective, you know, again, if it's a problem that Web 2.0 happens, uh, has, there'll probably is going to be an open source project. But if not, there's real value for enterprise software companies to add value. And so, you know, so that's a place where I think we differentiate as IBM, but I think it's probably the single most impactful thing um, we'll see. And that, by the way, combined with uh, uh, with 5G um, is, uh, uh, is pretty extraordinary. You know, for us, it's we have this platform that can go from running, you know, in your data center out to the edge. And you know, the problem with doing that with kind of welds and it's the same technologies that can take it all back is we now have an automaker who is involved in that, who wants to literally put open shift our container in the car. Right. And I don't know, maybe it's a great opportunity, but there's a whole different set of liability around cars. So we're trying to figure out, we're going to extend it all the way out to the end device that way. But that's why I say it's, it's amazing when you start thinking about the possibilities that AI can bring when you start thinking about it outside of the data center all the way out to, to the edge. IBM's made some big bets on artificial intelligence. How would you characterize the extent to which they've paid off? And more broadly speaking, do you think we're on the verge of a broader restructuring of the value chain as it pertains to your offering? Yeah, so uh, let me start on, on on the first there. You know, I'll say I respect the fact that IBM took a couple of big swings at the fence, um, but how they did it, bluntly, I think is fundamentally flawed. And what I mean by that is, 
this comes back a little bit to we talked a little bit about models in these centrally planned blah 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 blah. Is your ability to plan long term with, with the pace of innovation gets to be really really hard. And so if you take something like um, uh, you know kind of AI, you had I'll, Google putting together that Hey Google or or Amazon doing Alexa. What did IBM try to do? Let's go cure cancer, right? And so we put, you know, hundreds of billions over time in research and trying to cure cancer. Well, guess what? That's not an iterative, let's learn and build and learn and build and learn and build. So we spent massive amounts of money on trying to solve the hardest problem with the logic of if I solve the hardest problem, the easier ones will kind of be there. But the flip side around that is something like quantum, which require a whole set of fundamental research coming together. Okay, I got it. You got to plan long term. But when you're trying to do something like AI, ML, the power of learning and working in communities and iterative innovation is so much more powerful. So rather than say, let's come out with a set of products and let's learn, let's work with our customers and make them better. It's, hey, let's cure cancer. And from that, we'll develop products. So the dirty little secret of IBM on, you know, was it 2011 or 12 that Watson won Jeopardy? Um, we didn't actually have a, what I'll call a packaged product until 2017, I want to say. It was like five years later. And the reason is we're all trying to do things like cure cancer. That's one example. There were several others. And yeah, we had some success, some failures in these massive bespoke solutions. But I think we would be have been further along if we had taken a more iterative product-based approach, worked with our clients, learned, added to the products, and continue to move forward. So I think IBM, like, has this tendency to say, let's make these big bets. And there are times like quantum that might be the right thing to do, but we applied it in areas where iterative innovation and broader communities, I think, work better. And we did that, you know, a couple of times. The other problem with IBM, and I'm speaking out loud, which I think affects this as well, is frankly, we listen to you all too much. And what I mean by that, and I'll only give you an example. <laughs> um, I remember a year ago in September, so the, the deal with Red Hat closed in uh, on July 9th. So that meant into September was the first quarter of Red Hat being owned by IBM. And about a week before the end of the quarter, I started getting these random calls from saying, hey, you need to commit to putting XYZ in the product because I need that to close a deal and so-and-so client wants that. Or you got to put this in. And we just kept saying, well, no. And the IBM people are like, what are you talking about? You don't say no. And what our response is, look, we take input from a lot of people and then we solve the problem once for the industry in the way we see fit. And we try to convince people we're right. Otherwise, you're going to build 50 snowflakes and you're going to have bloated products. And yes, you've technically given people what they asked for, but not what they really, really want. What is it Henry Ford said? If I asked my customers what they want, they would say, build me a faster horse. Right. And so. IBM does have a tendency to directly try to meet client needs. I think that's because it has such a large services component versus really being religious about product and repeatability and let's do it once. And, and so I think that muscle, because it, it does have such a large services focus, has also slowed our ability to get uh, repeatable products out. So then you get these, frankly, iconic failures like, you know, Watson Health which was the AI and Watson, all these acquisitions because we're going to cure cancer. And guess what? That's a really, really, really hard problem. We can do some interesting things in healthcare, but we're not there yet, right? And so, and the other, that kind of leads you down a path of 
frankly, disappointing some clients because clients want to be on the bleeding edge too. But if you're beyond the bleeding edge trying to do things, you know, then they're disappointed. And so I think that's been the primary issue of just we try to, to we've made bets where the, the innovation model required more iteration and kind of modularity and working with clients. You know, the global internet helped you move around information, which is obviously magical and it's huge. But when you start thinking about being able to actually move around functionality, which Edge allows you to do and be able, again, you take that, the weld stuff, that weld stuff, there's too much data. You are never taking the data from those welds, passing it all the way back up into a cloud somewhere to do the analysis and back out the other side, you know, in time, right? So that is happening on the site, on the edge there. And so when you start thinking about the ability to part really powerful functionality out broadly, um, I think it's, uh, it's extraordinary what you can look to do there. I mean, we'll have smarter everything from, you know, toasters to welders to paint, you know, you know uh, panel painters in the same factories. And, you know, it's uh, incredibly powerful in what it can do. And a lot of that will be uh, powered by 5G, right? I mean, that's going to be the kind of the core backbone of how all this comes together. And so, you know, and our observation, it's one of the reasons I'm very positive about IBM. It's, you know, again, this is our, more about our competitive posture. You have the public clouds, people really good, like Amazon's really good at managing cloud. Now They're now trying to drop things out that looks like the cloud on the edge, like Outpost. You know, we started the other way, which is horizontal platform that runs anywhere. It can run on a small arm chip at the floor. Yeah, you know, we we started off that way. Plus, we have more industry vertical expertise for how you would reinvent an airline hub, right? You know, we have more expertise to think about how that works. And so I think for IBM, relatively a more distributed computing environment relatively positions us well against kind of the the, the hyperscalers who are really, really good at what they do. Please take a moment, if you would, Jim, to talk about the added value of curated open source-based platforms. Yeah, so let me start off with the open source components, and then I'll broaden it out to where I think open source relative to proprietary. So, and the reason I'm very, very, very well-versed at that is there are literally a million open source projects, and there are about 50 uh, of those that Red Hat commercializes, slash IBM kind of commercializes you know, where we believe there's value in curation and life cycle. And, you know, the simple reason is a lot of them, you don't need that. Where we believe you there's value in having that degree of curation is where there's potentially, and I'll give examples of this, where pieces need to fit together and therefore life cycle matters um, is a big one. And then the others, when you have a certain set of external security facing. So what I mean by the first one is, um, I'll use Linux as an example, and then I'll give a real kind of client world event that happened. So Linux changes 10 times a day. There are 10 patches that go into Linux per day. And that's great for fixing bugs or adding features. But if you're running your ERP system on something like that, you just can't do it. So the Red Hat model on a project like that, and again, this is a this is an example where you have something running on something else, and those things you need to know are going to work together, right? So Red Hat's business model is very much every period, well, periodically, in terms of major releases, once every three years, we 
freeze the spec on Linux. But the main thing we do is we say, we're going to commit to supporting this for 13 years, right? And uh, But without ever breaking binary compatibility of your code. So what we're, I'm sorry not to get into the technicals, but I think it's, give me, bear with me for a second. So like three years later, when bash bug or Heartbleed or any of those other things happen, those get fixed very quickly in Linux. And that's great. But if your ERP system or anything else is running on it, it's going to break. So you're running a three-year-old kernel, like you're running, you know, whatever, Windows, you know, server 2008. You probably want that patched. Well, Linux doesn't do that, right? There are no versions of Linux. There's Linux and it just works. So what Red Hat does is it has teams that say, all right, I got to fix that same bug or security uh, uh, issue in a five-year-old version and a seven-year-old version, nine-year-old versions of Linux without ever breaking binary compatibility, right? And so when you have some, you know, kind of a set of relationships like that, um, where you know you're going to want to get, in this case, a security or a bug fix that, that something else resides on top of, you need to make sure that you have a life cycle associated with it. And open source just doesn't do life cycles. I mean, I'll use another example of this real world example. You know, you know, the, the DreamWorks, you know, they make, you know, Shrek, all those movies. Well, we love DreamWorks because rendering a 3D, um, um, uh, you know, 4K um, uh, animated movie takes literally millions of processor hours, processor core hours. So huge Red Hat customers. And unbeknownst to us, when How to Train Your Dragon came out, um, DreamWorks, who's a huge customer, I know Katzenberg personally, because, you know, we're like a big part because we're such a big part of what they do. Um, built their whole web presence on JBoss, which is a Red Hat set of technologies, you know, web set of technologies. And movie goes live, million kids show up on the website, the website goes down, so he calls me at home. So I immediately get my team on the phone. Well, it turns out he wasn't using supported JBoss, he was using community JBoss, so the free versions. Um, shame on us, but uh, for not selling the value proposition there. But anyway, it doesn't matter. They're a massive multi-million dollar a year customer of ours. So I immediately got the upstream developers on JBoss and say, all hands on deck, you need to get them working. And it took us almost a week to get them stable. Because the reason is even the developers who wrote it, when you start saying, well, it's this version of this from three months ago and this version of this from you know, four months ago. And by the way, because it was never tested, you run into problems when you run things at extremes. And, you know, it's never tested where you're really pushing the limits of memory and cache, et cetera, et cetera. Even with the developers, it took us that long to get it together. Where obviously the commercial version, we've done all of that. So depending on the area. So, and again, so that's an application server. Again, it's a horizontal thing that software runs on. So that's why if you look at what Red Hat does, it just so happens it's all horizontal. It's operating system. It's a storage layer. It's a application server because those are kind of these many to many relationships where you need a life cycle. 90% of open source, you don't need that. One last example, just <laughs> um, if you remember the Equifax breach, um, we had, had offered for several years to uh, for 250 grand a year to provide updates to Equifax for all of that web stuff that they had. And they were happy to pay the 250, but frankly, their lawyers um, said, well, we want full 100% indemnification for all the code. And we're sitting here saying, whoa, time out, this is open source. We, we're not gonna do that, uh, but we can provide you security updates so you won't have the, the set of problems. And that was too risky. 
So, um, but again, so thinking about areas where you have a surface area where you want to make sure you have a partner that has a security response team that's doing the patching and or these many-to-many relationships make a lot of sense. Frankly, 75, 80% of open source, probably not worth paying for. To your other question, I'll try to talk quickly. To your other question, you know, my simple heuristic is if it's relevant to a web 2.0 company, there's going to be an open source project that is probably the same or generally better than a proprietary alternative. So I mean, if you can look at areas like big data, there are no, well, there may be a few now, but there are almost no proprietary big data kind of innovations out there because web 2.0 companies ran into that problem and they created Hadoop and Start, Spark and Fling and Flink and DevOps. It's really hard to find many DevOps tools that aren't open source. So my simple heuristic is if it's an infrastructure need that a web 2.0 company would have, you're probably going to have some really good open source projects. That's how we look at it inside of IBM. So in a cloud pack for data, you know, when we think about where we're going to invest versus where we're going to rely on open source, that's the rough heuristic uh, that we use. Jim, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time, with your insights. Uh, we appreciate your your overview of where IBM is now and where it's going and uh, the very exciting sort of uh, all that you anticipate in terms of exciting developments ahead. So thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate the opportunity to tell you what we're doing. Obviously, I'm excited about it. Uh, so I'm, 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 uh, I'm really honored to get a chance to do it. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Monday when my guest will be Sharon Mandel, the Chief Information Officer of Juniper.